Last year, with all the commotion that happened last year, after everything said and done, I was kind of nervous about two things. The first thing I was nervous about was, um, like, what would happen to Mag and David Yeshiva? And would, you know, a lot of work went into that Yeshiva by a lot of people for a long time. And would that, would that continue? Would that get even better? And then the second thing I was nervous about is that what would my relationship be with Mag and David Yeshiva? I loved the school. I, it was a big part of it for a long time. And what would my relationship be? And then, when we heard that Rabbi Mansur was going to be the person that's going to take over the yeshiva, there was a tremendous amount of excitement across the community. And on a personal level, I was really excited. A, because as a young boy, I never went to any speaking schools. Robert, you ever go to any speaking school? No, no I didn't go to any speaking school. And, but I had a few different trainings in how to speak and how to address the community. The first, first one was my father. And the second one was I was a young married man. I lived in Deal. I lived in Lakewood. My parents lived in Deal, and my in-laws lived in Brooklyn. So I had no real place when I was here for Shabbat. I had no real place. So I would go with my father-in-law, and sometimes on Saturday afternoons, young little guy, I just sneak in. This about this big speech we used to hear about that was happening in the downstairs of Achiyeze, and I don't know if I came maybe six or seven times. You remember when I came, right? And I, you can't take notes on Shabbat. But I took a lot of mental notes about how to capture a whole topic in, like, in a powerful way and in one shot and make, have a 45-minute speech, have one real focus and one, one mindset and how to excite the community and how to tell over a gemara, tell over a midrash, tell, tell over something in depth that, that slowly, like, all of a sudden it sinks in. And, they have, and I learned a tremendous amount from Rabbi Mansour. And then when we heard he was taking over Magna David, Again, we got incredibly excited because we knew that a lot, that Magadir was going to get even better and stronger. And a year later, looking back, Baruch Hashem, all that has happened in an unbelievable way. Talk to any boy or girl in Magadir, Yeshiva, high school specifically, you know, that was where we were mostly involved in. And they're just excited and energetic and they can't believe how wonderful school has been. So the community owes that to Rabbi Manso. And then on a personal level, Again, back to the personal level, I was hoping, I said, I love this school. I hope we can still have a relationship. And the way Rabbi Mansell was open and the conversations we've had since then and the relationship that we've developed has gotten even stronger. We were always close, but got even stronger in the last year has made it like I sometimes pinch myself. I said, Hashem, how could you have made something work out this way and this unbelievably when it looked so sloppy a year ago and at the end of the day, you can make it be so neat. And I obviously want to thank Hashem in a tremendous way, but also want to thank Rabbi Mansour because his attitude and his mentality has really brought something beautiful to this community. And we have a lot of girls here from Mag and David, and we hope it's not Hashem to continue to have girls here from Mag and David. And that's why the, be- the best person to be our first guest speaker that we ever have, and that was in my mind from before we started, that he has to be our first one. Rabbi Mansour. So Rabbi, someone who is a tremendous leader to the community and tremendous leader to all different levels of the community, it's a really a great honor to have you say a few words. Okay, I'm going to stay for a few minutes. Uh, It's hard to reciprocate on such a great introduction. (laughs) But uh, I will not exempt myself from doing nothing. 
it is well known in the community, the fondness that I have for the Rabbi Heba. It's no secret. Everybody knows our friendship. And uh, I will say the admiration that I have for the rabbi, <clears throat> for what he's, what he's done and what he's continuing to do and his vision and his dreams for the future. <clears throat> it's true, we give a lot of classes. But I must say that the great rabbi Haber's classes, they resonate with the kids, they resonate with the young adults. Uh, they get them. Even today, I'm in Mag and David Hall's they talk just as much about the Super Bowl as the rabbi's speech. During or before, which means it resonates, it, they relate to it, they can understand it. And you need rabbis today that are so high, and they're really high, rabbi's a holy man, but he's able to go to a low place to understand it so he can lift up everybody else to the holy place that he's in. And that's, it takes a genius to do that. And I'm always impressed how he delivers it properly, without a compromise, with all the sources and everything, and you go to a very dirty place, and somehow everybody comes out feeling so good about it, and he's able to, to clean them up, like he said. So, congratulations for this, what is it, a seminary, a school, a program? Program. Okay, it's a program <laughs> for the institution, for the institute, and uh, congratulations for Keshet, which is, to me, the most important organization that we have. You know, four years of high school is very good, but one week of college could undo it. <laughs> uh, and I'm being generous. And the fact that the rabbi is there like a safety net to catch all the casualties or potential casualties or to uh, make sure they don't, God forbid, fall is, is very important. Keshit has my full support. This program has my full support. And uh, to be honest, whatever the rabbi has his hands on, I stand behind him, uh, uh, eyes closed, because he's trustworthy, he's the imam, and he gets the job done. That's my introduction. I have much more to say. But uh, suffice it to be that I admire the man, and he's very precious to the community. And uh, I travel the world, and I see exactly the talent that's around, and you're looking at one in a million. And I, I don't say that uh, in exaggeration. Okay, that's, that's my talk about the rabbi. <clears throat> Part two to follow. And now something uh, to the girls of the yeshiva. So I'll take it to the last parasha that we had, which is the parasha Yitro. And Yitro is the Ten Commandments. And uh, today I'd like to talk about the last of the commandments. Uh, shockingly, that it even made it to the commandments, and that's Lot Ahmod. Now, when we were young, they taught us Lot Ahmod, don't covet. That's a $10 word. Rabbi, what does don't covet mean? So they would say, don't be envious. That's also a sophisticated word. Talk English. Don't be jealous. Oh, now you're talking our language. And that's the Lot don't be jealous. However, it's not the way the Ibn Ezra understands it. And the Ibn Ezra actually says something, in my opinion, is asking a lot from us. And it's actually mind-boggling that the Torah can hold us responsible for this. And he learns, Lot do not desire. What does it mean? He says it. If you see your friend has a beautiful house, you're not allowed to desire it and have a feeling to say, I wish I lived in this house. Now, you didn't do anything. You didn't do any action. You didn't pressure the guy to sell it to you. You didn't uh, tell the guy any uh, you know, negative comments against his house. You didn't harbor any resentment. All you said is, why so lucky I desire it. 
or you see somebody have an asset, a car or whatever, you know, luxury or, or, or something of life that uh, fancies you, and you have a feeling that you wish that was yours, according to the Ibn Ezra, you're in contempt of a sin from the Torah, which is a federal crime. The Ibn Ezra knows he's saying a big hitush. So his next question is, how could the Torah mandate a feeling? How can the Torah tell you how to feel? Feelings are uncontrollable. You could tell me, don't eat this. All right, I'll have to resist. You could tell me, keep Shabbat. All right, I'll have to, I'll have to figure it out. But I can't tell a child, eat your broccoli and like it. He can eat his broccoli and hold his nose. But can I tell him, you have to like it? I don't like it, but... So how could the Torah mandate a feeling? Desiring, I see a pretty house, I wish I lived there, and it's just a feeling that enters me. And the Torah is telling you, well, you, you, you better catch yourself. Because that feeling is no different than eating not kosher. It's a sin from the Torah. And the Ibn Ezra says, well, then, if the Torah is asking this from us, there must be a method that we can uh, employ to try to curb this desire. So I'll tell you what he says. He gives a mashal. You might have heard it. You don't desire things that are out of your league, that you know uh, you'll never get, and it's beyond uh, 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 attainment. As an example, I'm sure we're all impressed when we see a, a, a bird flying freely in the sky. But none of us ever said, wow, he's so lucky, I wish I was a bird that could fly. Now, there's nothing wrong to be impressed by the flight of a bird, but nobody ever said, when they came home and the mother said, you look depressed, I wish I had wings. <laughs> nobody talks like that. Why? Because you know you're not a bird. It's not going to happen. They will, you're allowed to say, wow, how marvelous this is. This is incredible what a bird does. But nobody will ever fret or lose sleep uh, or have a desire that, you know, why, why can't I have wings? You can't have wings because humans don't have wings. That's, that's, you, you've resolved to that uh, conclusion that you're not going to have wings, it's not a human item, and uh, let's move on. So that's out of your uh, items of desire. He gives an old-fashioned mashal, and I'll, out of respect to the Ebenezer, I'll say his mashal as well. He talks about a kafri. A kafri is a villager. In the older days, the simpler people lived in the village. Now, these were more like farmers and agricultural people, more basic, humble, you know, uh, uh, unsophisticated people were called Kafis, the Kafar. And one day, the princess of the kingdom came to visit the Kafar. And uh, the Kafri, the farmer, sees the princess. And the princess with all her glamour and all her beauty and all the entourage. But the Kafri, although he's in admiration and he's uh, in, in, in awe of what he's seeing, but it'll never enter his mind, oh, I desire, I wish I could marry her. Because he knows the distance between the Kafri and the royal's family is it's not chayat, it's an impossibility. That's the distance between a human and a bird, the Kafri and the princess. So although he might say, wow, it's unbelievable, but he's not going to get to love and say, why can't I marry this girl? You're lucky if you'll marry the farmer's daughter next to you. You'll be lucky, lucky. Where's all the cows in the barn? This is, this is your wife? Possible. She's too high. 
That's the mashal. Great girls of the yeshiva. There's a level of imunah that tells us what belongs to the other was predetermined by God. His house, his wife, his assets, his fortune. It was not uh, delivered to him by coincidence or by chance. It's been Hashemayim. Everything is divinely orchestrated. And if it reached that person's portfolio, because Hashem wanted him to have it, and you not. And just because the other has it does not mean he's taking it or she's taking it from you. But whatever that person's tikkun in life is or their purpose, they need that item. It's for them. It's their test. And it doesn't belong to you. Because if it did belong to you, you would have it. You have to remove that feeling to say, oh, well, she has it. Why can't I have it? Oh, she has it. So she gave it to her. She wanted that. And if you don't have it, it's the best for you not to have it. And therefore, that house is like wings. It's not for me. I don't need it. I don't want it. So the Ibn Ezra basically saying, Lotahmod, although it's a negative commandment, really can only be accomplished by fulfilling the positive commandment of having Imunah. Then we can work on Lotahmod. It doesn't start with Lotahmod. It starts on everything is Benashamayim and everything is for the best and God knows what he's doing. <clears throat> you have to look at it like one rabbi once said. Imagine you go to your friend's house and you open the medicine cabinet. And you see all different types of medicines. You don't become desirous. Oh, I only have two bottles of medicine. Oh, they're so lucky. I have all these medicines. Nobody's ever jealous of their friend's medicine cabinet. Why? Medicine, I don't want it. Well, whatever a person has, is their medicine that's showing giving them their prescription. Nobody is jealous of somebody else's eyeglasses. Oh, what number are you? Minus 10. Oh, I'm uh, so lucky. I'm only minus 8. Uh, I'm not jealous of your prescription. Uh, you can't see. That, that doesn't make me uh, jealous. So you have to look at that as a sense as they might have some nice things and beautiful things, and you could admire nice things. That's not an avon. say, oh, nice house. That's not the avon again. It's nice house. I wish I had that house. I wish I lived in that house. I wish I had that car. I wish, oh, come down. You wish you're going to marry the princess? You're so far away from you. That shame game, it doesn't even enter the realm of, of machshamah to even think such a thing. Interesting, understand. Now, <clears throat> that's the way Ibn Ezra understands Lot Tahmur. I must say, not everybody agrees with it. Ramban argues. <clears throat> Ramban learns Lot Tahmud that you're not allowed to be uh, jealous of somebody's property and it will lead you to pressure him or her to sell it to you or give it to you. So according to Ramban, it's not just the feeling, it's the feeling that leads to an action. And without the action, you didn't transgress. I'll give you an example. You see a girl with a beautiful ring. Oh, I love that ring. I desire it, I wish I had it. Point to that man, you didn't do anything wrong. I've been Ezra, I'm in trouble. Abad, desiring it, that's not But then I go, to, oh, I love that ring. Can I have it? No. Uh, I'll buy it from you. No. Uh, I call friends, to be fair. Speak to God. Tell us this. I'm a rabbi. Give me the ring. I'll buy it. I'll pay you more than your paper. Well, I'll feel the pressure. That's not what where you're doing an action to try to get the item to become yours. Hevantem the machlokat Rishonim over here? Yeah. Ibn Ezra ben Abban. Well, let's go back to Ibn Ezra because that's the focus of today. Ten Commandments. There's also the Asiri Emet Teshuvah. I know it's not timely. 
Those are the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Just put this in your notes, make an asterisk, remember this in uh, six months. Anyway, the Zohar Kadosh writes that the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur correspond to 10 commandments. So it means Rosh Hashanah would be the first commandment, the second day Rosh Hashanah would be the second, and go down the line. That means Lot Tahmur corresponds to which day? Yom Kippur. Wow. I wouldn't have thought such a holy day is corresponding to such a mundane, ordinary base animal sleep as I, but I understand why. Before this class, I understood the connection Yom Kippur and don't cover the don't desire, because that's the easiest day to fulfill this mazah. Because nobody's doing anything physical. Everybody's in shul, everybody's wearing their leather, non leather shoes, nobody's eating, nobody's thinking about their homes, nobody's thinking about their garden, so it's an easy day to you know, not be too concerned about what people have. So I think what Lord Tahmar and Yom Kippur are basically saying, just like today you were able to uh, master it, this should be the model and try to do that every day of the year. That's the way I understood before I came into that. But now I have a deeper understanding. Let's talk about Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Asayim and What is the main focus in the Sidur? I did, a, I think, a, an experiment once. The word that shows up the most in the Mahzor of Rosh Hashanah Kippur is the word Melech. And it's perfect because the first commandment is which is on the king. Perfect Rosh Hashanah. Second day of Rosh Hashanah is also great. Same Mahzor. What's the second commandment? I'm the only king, nobody else. So the first two days of Rosh Hashanah actually are the foundation of our emunah. And then, basically, ten days of building our emunah, emunah, until you get to Kippur. By the time you get to Kippur, you have ten days of working on emunah. By that time, you are rehabilitated, hopefully. Not that much be easy for you. Once you recognize that everything is from Hashem, and that's why, how does Kippur end? Adonai, Basically, we're saying, Hashem, you are orchestrating everything. And everything is Barashamayim, and you control everything. And therefore, by the time Kippur is over, even when you're going to leave the Kippur world, you're already, your desires are not so strong anymore because you have such a strong Imunah that you worked on over the past, past 10 days. So I would look at the Asid, they were not like this, uh, great ladies of the Yeshiva. There's many ways to read the Ten Commandments. Most people read them vertically, meaning down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I've seen some read them horizontally. One would correspond six. One day we'll do that if I'm invited back. It's a genius way of reading them. But today I would like to read the Asirat and the Birot circularly. You know when you listen to music, a loop. You know the loop, after they finish the ten songs, it goes back to the beginning. So I think the Asirat can be read today as a loop, which means which mitzvah is the closest to Lot Tahmud? Well, the one before it. And the one after it. Exactly. And I think what the Torah is telling us in the loop understanding is that the only way to overcome Lot Tahmud is Anukhiya So yeah, number 10 is a hard one. Better go back to number 1. And if you master number, so the book ends. Number 1 and 10 are definitely uh, related in the sense that the more we recognize things I'm in a Shamayim, the better chance we have to overcome Lot Tahmud. So that's, that's an important thing, girls. You know, once you start believing that just like Parnasat uh, Barashamayim, houses Barashamayim, Nasib, when a person gets married, Nasib, it's all from Hashem. So, what's Hashem after me? Hashem knows I exist. 
And I should have thought that this house was part of my prescription, and he would have given it to me. He didn't. Therefore, must be, it's not part of my prescription. Actually, it must be detrimental to my prescription. Therefore, I'm glad I don't have it. But I'll tell you something even more. The parasha in Kedoshim is parashat Kedoshim. In parashat Kedoshim, there's many mitzvot. And the Midrash writes that you can actually find the Ten Commandments in Parashat Kedushim as well. Different words, but an allusion to the Ten Commandments. I'll give you an example. The first Pesukim in Kedushim say, Ish imo ba'aviv tirau. Oh, fear your parents. Ve'et shabetotai tishmoru. Keep the Shabbat. The next Pesuk. Al tifnu ela elilim. Don't do avodah zarah. And the Midrash goes one by one. So then the Midrash says, where do you see lot ahmod? Where do you see don't be jealous? So the Midrash says, well, there's a word that's used in that pasuk. Do not be jealous of what belongs to your friend, re'acha. And there's a pasuk in Parashat Kedushin that also has the word re'acha. Re'afta? You're unbelievable. Re'afta re'acha kamocha. Love your neighbor, love your friend. And I ask a simple question. Hold it. Lot Tahmur is Lot Tahmur, and Abdallah Tahmur is something else. Very nice, he found the Akhar, he found a, a common word, but that doesn't mean that it's the same item. I'm very happy that you found a common word, but that does not turn the Abdallah into don't be jealous. What I think the Torah is telling us is that it starts with Lot Tahmur. I don't decide what you have. Good luck to you, good luck to me. What's yours is yours, what's mine is mine, but it doesn't end there. Because I cannot be desirous of what you have, but it doesn't mean I'm happy for you. That's it for I'm happy for you? I might not be so happy. Uh, I don't want it. Hashem gave you, give me, but you know what? I'm not married yet, you're married, so I'm not so happy for you. I don't want that boy, I'll get married, but you know what? I'm not so happy. Why did you get back before me? Uh, I can't uh, say that I feel your happiness so much. So therefore, the Torah is telling us the next level. If you overcome Lot Tahmod, then you've got to get to the level where not only do I desire my friend has, but I'm very happy for them. This is a very high level. To feel somebody's pain is easier than to feel somebody's joy. You know, when somebody loses something, oh, I feel so bad. Because it's little in us that uh, they lost it. Good, so they don't have that. Right. So we both don't have it. I feel bad for you. When somebody loses a million dollars, oh, I'm so sorry you lost a million dollars. When somebody, oh, I won the Powerball, $10 million. You did. <clears throat> you don't so happy. Uh, I'm kind of happy. But you look, you look more sad when I lost it than you look happy when I won it. That's probably true. Because it's hard to see somebody else succeed when you didn't have it. But if it doesn't belong to you, by the way, I'm happy for the bird. I'm very happy for the bird. <laughs> I'm very happy. It doesn't affect me. You can fly. It's unbelievable. What a feeling that must be. And, and by the way, look at me. You'd be happy with what I did in my life. But, and you can't do what I'm doing. So you should be happy for me too. Look at Rabbi Manso. What are you doing? You can't fly, but you can do other things. You understand my point? So then we have to get to a level of that. That can come up a higher level. Girls, the shnap of Kabbalah. There's a Ashir. They're unbelievable. There's a Ashir. Sameach bechelko. 
I always learned it. Who's the rich man? The man that is happy with his share. His share. Who's the his? Helko. I always understood his share, the guy himself. But maybe, maybe there's a deeper way of understanding it. <clears throat> Can Helko mean not his share, but his share? Maybe a real ashik is that he can be happy with somebody else's share. That's really a rich man because he doesn't have to have it. He's happy that somebody else has it. I'm happy to see that your, your life is comfortable with it. But you don't have it. I don't need it. Hashem uh, gives me other things that you don't have, that you don't need. So that's, that's the long story for girls. But I didn't make it easy for you today because basically what I'm telling you girls is Lotachmod is going to take time to master. You have to work on Imunah. This might take a couple of years to gain the muscle of Imunah. And some of you are saying, but Rabbi, I, I want to fix it right now. I don't have time to wait two years till my Imunah is strong. I want to uh, give me a time where the headache will go away immediately. I don't want to give you a medicine which will take six years for the, the migraine to go away. <clears throat> well, if you ask me for a quick fix, I do have a quick fix. But recognize that if I tell you this, you will probably not have a desire for anybody's life forever again. So get your less jealous thoughts out of your system now because you're going to be cured in three minutes from now. It's a lucky day. You didn't think that I was going to offer you such a secret. <laughs> that you will never be tempted to be jealous again. If I, I, get, I don't need three minutes to tell you, so it's not a long-winded mirage. It's that easy. What I told you initially is not easy. Well, nah, the books, work on yourself, convince yourself. Nah, that's odd. That's a long path. Worth it. But uh, some say, uh, I'll take that path, Rabbi, but give me the pill right now. So, uh, not that I won't take the path of Emunah, but so I can start, uh, you know, being uh, less desirous immediately. I came to this just a few weeks ago. Girls, as a rabbi, part of my job, besides giving classes, which is the best part of my job, teaching, is counseling people. And all day long, people just come to talk to the rabbi, to talk to the rabbi, to talk to couples and single. Everybody comes to talk to the rabbi. You are welcome to come to talk to the rabbi as well. And I noticed all types of people come rich people, poor people, middle class people, healthy people, unhealthy, everybody. No discrimination. But then I thought to myself, what do all these people have in common? There must be a common denominator that all these people who come to visit me share. And the common denominator, the only thing I could find that they all share is they all have problems. Nobody ever comes to meet me who doesn't have a problem. And I said, does anybody have an easy life in this world? Well, I haven't met him. Nobody ever came to me and said, you know what? Everything's good. So what'd you come to me for? Just, just, just I love looking at the rabbi. I just love looking at the rabbi. <laughs> Stare at you for a couple of minutes. And then I go, I, that, that's what you want to do? Yeah, that's what I want to do. It. Okay. No, no, here's a picture. But, but, but you, you see, nobody ever does that. For the simple reason, because everybody has problems. And it, it, it became very, very sharp to me last two weeks ago. A couple in the community, no names, of course, a couple came to me. 
And uh, they were complaining, they, have a, they don't have an easy life. And they went through the different things. And they said, and you know, Rabbi, and they mentioned a couple. Like, look at them. Had a good marriage, their kids lived nicely. I mean, if we just had half what they would have, Rabbi, yeah. Now, which I thought was strange. Usually people don't compare. But they were in such pain, like, look, look if you saw that they were like a little jealous. To mention a name. And of course, I spoke to them, and you know, whatever I gave them a little pep talk and so on. Little did they know. The next meeting I had was with that couple. As they were walking out, the couple walked in. Did they see two? Two weeks ago. Wow, that's great. They sit down. I said, I didn't tell them. I'm looking. I don't believe them. I don't believe them. And I know them. The couple that they were jealous of was my next, uh, they were jealous of that couple. That couple now came to my office. And the lady starts, what, what? she starts crying. Oh, it's a crying meeting. Hold it, hold it. Hold it. And, shows. and for five minutes, her husband just holding her. She can't even get the words out of her mouth. Who died? What happened? I never saw such a crying, bawling. Choked up. The most emotional thing. Take your time, honey. I'm not rushing you. Cry. And his wife is like, honey, okay, honey, okay. Just tell the rabbi. Don't worry. She calms down. Rabbi, why does Hashem give me all these tests? Now, tests? These people live for, I mean, it's a model family. My daughter is anorexic. My son is depressed. My other son is being bullied. And all of a sudden, Tisha B'Av lives. And I'm saying, what? I mean, I was surprised. Didn't know that all these problems lurk behind this beautiful family. I can't take it anymore. I had enough. And I said to myself, if those people that just left would know half of what you just said, you know what they would say? I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to. Because whatever they have, you only know part of the story. And that's a big lesson, girls. Whatever you see, it's not the whole story. As a rabbi, I know the whole story. And once you start to see the whole story, most people will say, you know what? Keep the good stuff and keep your bad stuff and the difficult stuff, and I'll keep my stuff as well. And shalom and That's my conclusion. Nobody shows their problems in public. Everybody makes it, oh, it's fine, great, beautiful, oh, life is wonderful. We, we, everybody's in a masquerade party. We're playing as if we have the yellow brick road in front of us, and everything is, uh, is daisy and rosy. But I'm telling you, it's not. And if you know what's the best cure for don't desire? Don't desire what, ha what your friend has, because you know what? If you desire too much, you might get it. And you're not going to want it. You have to know you're not seeing the whole picture. And there's no exception to this. The two survivors of the Holocaust, and they met each other many years later. They were friends of the Holocaust. One became a very wealthy man, one was a very poor guy. So the poor guy tells his friend, wow, you really made it. He had like a, a, a laundromat all over the United States, became very wealthy. He says, me, I worked from early in the morning to late at night. At the end of the month, I hope I can make ends meet. I don't even have anything extra. My highlight of the day is 
I come home and drink a cup of coffee with a piece of cake. That's the thrill of the day. And his friend, the rich man, says, what I would do for a cup of coffee, I have a bleeding ulcer. I can't have coffee. I can't eat. I can't do My stomach hurts all the time. have a cup of coffee. How lucky you are. And then the guy realizes, look at this. I'm, I'm saying, I wish I could be him because he's so, and he's telling me, well, why are you a cup of coffee? You know what? Keep your money. I'll keep my coffee. It's a trade-off. You have this, but he has something else. Life is not all about uh, a straight line. There's potholes and there's bumps and there's all sorts of impediments. It has to be that way. That's the way life is. All of is different. So be careful of who you're jealous of. Because if you're going to ask for it too much, you might end up getting it. And then what you're getting is, that's not what I asked for. Yeah, you wanted to be like that one. Well, I didn't know they had one. You should know that. You should know that uh, uh, people's lives are much more than what you see or what they let you You know, what, what they let you see. And I'll conclude with one more story. By the way, you're cured. I'm cured. I can see a guy who has, I can see a guy who has bird wings. And I won't be jealous of him. I don't know what else he has. So I was in Israel once, and there was a rabbi, a great rabbi, the everybody was online getting berachot. Everybody. And the guy in front of me was a poor, miskin type of guy. And he tells the rabbi, he says, even here there's prejudice? I saw when a rich man comes to the rabbi, you're talking for 10 minutes. And when a poor guy like me comes, you only talk for five minutes. Even over here, the rabbi paid is the rich guy. And the rabbi didn't answer. He said, okay, tell me your problem. And he had a bad guy. Well, when my turn came, I said, rabbi, I know the rabbi is a sadiq. And I know the rabbi is not showing favoritism. You're helping people. You're giving them advice. Why would you show favoritism? But could the rabbi explain to me? I also noticed that. He said, rabbi, I'll explain it to you. He said, the poor man is not embarrassed of his problems. He has little ego. So when he comes in front of me and I say, what is bothering you? He tells me right away. So I'm able to give him a blessing and give him advice. But the rich man comes in front of me, he has ego. And I tell him, what is bothering you, my dear? Nothing, everything's fine. Oh, then I have to pry it out of him. Your marriage is good? Yeah, well, oh, and your children? Uh, so because they're very, very reluctant to reveal their problems, it takes me nine minutes to get it out of them. And then one minute to give them the advice. And the so I'm not giving them more time to favor them. They're harder to crack. So when you see people that look, they're wearing it very well, and they're disguising it very well, they hide it very well. But when they come to the rabbi's office, they got the tissues, and start the whole process, and then you start to see, wow, if the, if, if the couple before would only know what I know, they wouldn't look at that thing in a coveted eyes, or a jealous eyes, or drawn this way the rest of their lives, they would say to God, thank God they got what they got, and thank God more that I got what I got. Yeah, there's some challenges, but it's nowhere near what that. Everybody can handle what they can handle, and uh, therefore, uh, to me, that's the Tylenol to fix Lotahmon. But please, girls, don't, uh, don't, because of this quick fix, neglect the long journey of Imwana. And then my prayer is that Wana should give us only the good things should give us eyes that we only look inwardly. I'm going to look outwardly. I will give advice to our members. Probably not the best idea, 
to broadcast all of our successes to the world only because you might be causing others to become envious and you're not allowed to cause people to make sin. Therefore, why would you want people to make sin? You can't give a person a ham sandwich and say, eat it. So by flaunting things that are good in your life, you might be activating other people's more genes and therefore you're responsible for that sin because you triggered it, you motivated it. So therefore, I think part of this is being a little more modest, which I'm not giving you Musad, I know you girls are modest, but I'm just talking because that's part of the speech, but it's no. a, a present uh, company excluded. But nonetheless, uh, employ both methods. Employ the long method of Imunah, and the second method is if everybody has a suitcase, and everybody has monsters in the suitcase, and you wouldn't want to exchange suitcases with anybody else. It's all about your own problems and whether the storm and it'll be okay. Stop over here, girls. Thank you. Pleasure to visit.